know these people who have it all figured out? Well, they don't. At least not all of it. They don't have everything figured out. But I can tell you they do have something figured out. You do too. And that's what this show is about. Figuring out what you have figured out. Figuring out what you don't have figured out. And by figuring out how you figured out what you have figured out, figuring out how to figure out what you don't have figured out. Don't worry. I've got it all figured out. Here we are about to embark on episode two of season two in 2022. If you listen to our last installment, I was talking to Shalisa Wooden-Jones about how it seems like as we get older, we only get smarter. But when we are young, if you like think adolescence here, we don't appreciate, we don't even consider seriously the pearls of wisdom our ever-vigilant and magnanimous parents are offering us. And now that I've been both on the serving and the receiving end of these tragic interactions, and I think they really are tragic in like, I thought you were dead so I killed myself. Like, like that kind of unnecessary kind of waste and tragedy kind of what, that's the kind of tragedy I'm talking about here when our children don't listen to us. Anyway, when I think about that, it seems like we should only be talking to people and seriously considering what they have to say if they're at least like 65 or so. Well, if you agree with this sentiment, I have got the interview for you. It's a treat today because my very wise and angelic mother is the guest. And she just turned 80 in January of 2022. So I can't think of a better person to talk about the wisdom she has garnered for the last four score years. So during this interview, we talk about canning secrets that the FDA doesn't want you to know about, the importance and double-sided nature of trials, how the pilgrims progressed in the new world, and then we talk about something she doesn't have figured out. So here's my mom. Mother! Yes, ma'am. I'm recording now. Okay. So you know it's all on the record from here on out. Alrighty. Okay. So... I usually ask my, this is a little bit strange, talking to my mom like this. That's all right. <laughs> well, I noticed it was not, I was not the first one you tried it out on. Well, that's true. I don't know why that is. I don't know. I feel like I already know what you have figured out. You've been telling me for years. And if I didn't <laughs> listen then, why am I going to start now? <laughs> that's a good question. Right? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. All right, so mom, go ahead and start with your life sketch. Tell, tell our, our listening audience what they need to know in order to understand you and where you came from. Oh, well, I have to admit that I forgot that this was something I was supposed to do. I was so involved in the things that I had figured out and the things that I didn't have figured out. But, um, yeah, I got started in this, uh, in this life in... Um, Portland, Oregon, because my father was um, going to dental school back there. And so uh, we stayed there until he graduated. He went to work for a while, and this was during the Second World War. And then he went into the Navy <clears throat> as a dentist, and we all moved to San Diego. That was a pretty neat thing for uh, a mother and father that had come from Wyoming. And, of course, the weather was so nice there that, uh, <laughs> what? You don't have to shovel snow? This is the place for me. 
So um, all the rest of my uh, siblings were all born in Southern California in the San Diego area. And I grew up there and of course it was a lovely life, just really nice. We, we lived in La Mesa uh, for a time and then in the middle of my sophomore year, uh, one of my uh, one of my dad's patients was trying to sell his property in Ramona, in Ramona, which was um, still in San Diego County, but up in the foothills. Um, and so we went up there to look, take a look at it one time. And oh my gosh, we loved that place. It was such a neat place. We had no idea that mom and dad were thinking about buying it at that time. But uh, when they told us that we were moving there, we could hardly believe our ears. And um, I went from a very large high school, some 2000 at least uh, kids, brand new high school to a very old high school <laughs> of 200 students. And uh, my, my class, my graduating class had uh, 50 kids in it. So it was quite a, quite a shock. And I remember my one uncle, uh, saying something to me says, well, uh, now you're going to be a big frog in a little pond instead of a little frog in a big pond. And I had no idea what that meant. But when I figured it out, I thought, well, that was certainly the truth. And I got a lot more opportunities there than I would have in the big school. Um, I ended up being the treasurer of the um, ASB. And I also got to be on the, um, the staff for the uh, yearbook and the newspaper. So we had a lot of experience doing that kind of thing. And it was a lot of fun. So, um, yeah, it was, it was exciting. I was the, um, a co-chair for our junior senior prom. So we, the juniors put it on for the seniors and we went all out. My gosh, we had a, a wonderful time making a, um, a wonderland of, uh, of sorts in our gymnasium. And that was the last time we actually had our junior senior prom in Ramona. After that, they all decided they had to go somewhere away from Ramona. And uh, we were pretty disappointed as seniors to go to some, uh, I don't know what it, what it was, but it was it was disappointing after all the work that we had put in for the event the year before. <clears throat> anyway, uh, I ended up being the valedictorian of the class. And uh, that was, I'm sure, very disappointing to the salutatorian whose <laughs> sister who had, been, had been, yeah, who'd been there the whole time. And his sister had been the valedictorian. And, and when I heard about, I didn't even know what a valedictorian was, you know, first in the family. And that's just kind of stuff nobody ever talked about. And I thought, gee, I think I'd like to be valedictorian. And then I was, and, and he was, uh, I'm sure he never said anything, but I can imagine what he was thinking. Anyway, right. he went, he went on to be a, uh, a lawyer and, uh, I went into teaching, which was something that I had always wanted to do. Um, I remember, uh, she was it probably the summer after my first grade getting my siblings together and trying to have uh, to teach them. That was not successful. <laughs> but some yeah, things it, never change. <laughs> but it was, you know, it was just something that I, I just admired my teacher so much. And I thought, 
what a wonderful thing to do, you know, to be able to, to teach kids. And so off I go to BYU and my dad was disappointed. He wanted me to go to the University of Wyoming, but I never thought I'd want to go to Wyoming for heaven's sake. Did he, he go was, to there? I guess yeah, he that, did. Yeah, that's where he went. And so of course- Is that know, where he met grandma? Oh no, 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 no. This story is a fantastic one because um, in the little area of Wyoming, there's three little towns that are up there. Uh, let's see, it's um, Lovell, Byron, and I never can remember three. If I remember two, I can't remember the third one, whatever it is. But there's three little, just in a little triangle up in the northwestern part of Wyoming, very, very close to uh, Yellowstone Park. Anyway, um, <clears throat> my dad, my grandfather, my dad's dad, was in the state presidency, and so they would go from um, from one ward building to another as they were, you know, every Sunday, have an opportunity to go and have have a uh, representative the stake there. And my mom tells the story that um, uh, the father was there and he brought his family and had all these kids lined up there and and she and her sister were looking at them and um, and she leans over to her sister and she says that one's mine and the other sister says well I'll take the other one then whatever you know <laughs> and as it turned out that's that was their first time of seeing each other I don't even know if my dad saw my mom at that time but she saw him and then uh, later on uh, when she was in high school, he invited her to go to um, the junior senior prom and their their school was even smaller than ours. I don't know if they even had 50 kids in the whole school, but um, <clears throat> apparently she had kind of been going with somebody else and he kind of took her for granted and mm. just said something about the dance. She She didn't even know what he said and she already had this arranged to go with with my dad. And um, so they both showed up at about the same time and she was in kind of a fix. She didn't really know that this other guy had invited her to go to the dance. And so then he was without a date and the girls were unhappy because they could have gone with him mm. and this. And so she kind of was in a, uh, she said, carry a social situation. Yes, yes, yes. And in such a small school, you know, it, it is interesting in small situations that maybe wouldn't be quite as strong in larger. We've got more people to spread out. But anyway, that was the situation. And um, so anyway, my dad was um, a year ahead of her and he went off to went off to college. And I guess she was going to uh, nursing school in um, Idaho Falls. Oh. And there was there was someone else that had a similar name and it, Ezra, you know, you don't hear that very often. But um she in the dormitory um she just finished washing her hair and she had her hair up in a towel and she got the message that there was someone there to see her and she thought it was going to be somebody else and it turned out it was my dad and she was a little flustered to be there with her hair in a towel you know and not looking her you know tip top 
So anyway, he um, asked her to go out for a ride with her with him in his little car and they off they go and and um, from what I understand, there was some kind of a, a sandstorm going on at the time and he asked her to marry him and <laughs> and she accepted. So they um, as things turned out, they went to um, to Portland. And so were they married. courting during that time or was this like uh, out of the blue? Will I don't you marry think it was totally, I don't think it was totally out of the blue. I'm, I'm sure that they had been seeing each other, but it was a difficult thing because of the distance because he was in Portland at that time and, or, you know, I'm, I'm a little bit, little fuzzy on some of the details because I remember the dormitory, remember the sandstorm. And I know they got <laughs> I married the in Portland. The a towel. Yes. And I'm not too sure if this was between when he had graduated from the uh, University of Wyoming and before he went to dental school. So that it may have happened just at that time. And uh, that's when they when they went to Portland because that's where they were married. Okay. Now, my last question, what year was this? What year did they get married? They got married in uh, 41. Okay. And uh, I was born in 42 in January. So, were parents, so it was, mm -hmm. you're, we're never going to get past this life sketch, especially if I keep asking you questions about your parents, which aren't yeah. even, you know, your life. But so were they very affected by the depression or because of where they were in Wyoming? Was it not as big of a, an impact on them? Do you know? Well, the problem was that uh, in the depression, um, that you know businesses were affected farms did pretty well and okay. both of them came from uh you know farming uh families and so they they didn't go without necessities but they didn't have money to do things i know my mom's sisters uh one of them had been going to byu and taking art and they says we just can't help you anymore and so the, the two sisters, one of them was already married, Aunt Sigrid was married, but the two sisters and Aunt Sigrid's mother-in-law decided that they would have a beauty salon. So they took the classes that they would need to do and the mom had a, a room built onto her house where they had a beauty salon and uh, they they um, did things to uh, for the teachers at BYU. They were some of their best clients. And so they, that was something they did for the rest of their lives. But my mom somehow missed that, but she was, you know, in the nursing school. And so mm -hmm. that worked out for them there. But um, of course at BYU, going back to me, you know, mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> the uh, second year that, that I was going, um, I had been dating someone who who I had met at a uh, young women's young men's uh, dance first thing in the in the year the year first year I was freshman and uh, I decided for a very for many reasons that uh, I didn't want to spend any more time with him I felt like this was a losing proposition and so I, I what were the reasons Ah, well, one of the big ones was that he was, he was called to be a, um, oh, I think I'm just trying, because it was different in those times. It was like, sure. it was a, a 70, but it wasn't like what we think of the seventies now. Right. And he 
he refused that calling because he said I'd have to be a missionary for the rest of my life. And I just, that to me was just, I, I couldn't imagine somebody refusing a call. Hmm. And so that, that was the big thing. Um, and so anyway, broke up like the first week of school or something like that. And your dad was at the same dormitory that I was at. He'd had a date with somebody else there and he was looking for a way to get a ride home if he could, cause he didn't have a car and this other fellow did. And so <clears throat> He found out they were kind of going the same direction. And so uh, as he was taking him home, um, my fellow, original one, uh, was bemoaning the fact that he, you know, that I'd broken up with him. And he says, well, why don't you see if you can go out with her? Then I'll know she really means what she says. And so uh, Gary gave me a call and gave me quite an interesting line and which I, you know, I don't think I really ever did meet you at a dance in a steak dance in San Diego, because I never went to a steak dance in San Diego. <laughs> However, you know, somebody was asking me. So I thought, well, sure, I'll, I'll go out. So that'll be fun. We went to an Arizona dance, Arizona club dance the first time. And on that, whoever you go with does make a difference. The boys stand on one side and the girls stand on the other side. And then you just ask people to dance. Oh, I had a great time at that dance. And um, so things just um, moved along quite rapidly. And I was, was pretty dad impressed. a good dancer? I've never asked this question. I can't imagine him yeah. moving musically. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's kind of surprising, you know, after he's gone through everything else and all the, uh, <clears throat> all the problems he had health-wise, you wouldn't think so, but we didn't do a lot of dancing after we got married, but we sure did a lot of dancing before, and it was uh, it was fun. We enjoyed dancing. So um, <clears throat> anyway, we, we got married the following spring in June, June, so it was June 16th of 61. Had all those sixes and ones in there, it was kind of fun, in the uh, Los Angeles temple. And um, then we had had a pretty interesting few years just kind of being nomads and doing school and going off to fairs and, and whatnot. It was... Um, what would you be doing at the fairs? Well, this, this is the interesting thing because I graduated uh, <clears throat> in three years. Oh. And um, so then I started work on a master's. Oh, well, first, first I finished my teaching degree of teaching credential afterwards, because I'd heard that, you know, first you graduate and then all the hours count towards, you know, what your pay scale is going to be. And oh, okay. so I thought, okay, well, I will get my teach, do my teaching training after I graduated in art and English. And so I did, did my student teaching and everything. And then so that took a semester. And so I thought, okay, well, let's get started on a master's. I got started and I did one, one semester of um, art master's work. And then we got a little notice in the mail that um, because I had been graduated for a year, that it was time for us to start paying our, paying off the, um, student loan. the loans. Yeah, the student loan. Oh, wow. 
Gary wasn't graduated and I was, so I thought, okay, well, I've got a teaching degree. Let's see what I can find around here. Well, I hadn't, somehow I hadn't connected with that like other people who were prepared. And so all the teaching opportunities that were reasonably close to the BYU uh, were pretty much filled. Mm-hmm. But as I walked into the employment office, what a surprise, but the superintendent of schools from Ramona was there looking for a third grade teacher. What? Yes. And when he saw me, he approached me and said, well, what are you doing? Oh, I've got to find a job, you know, and he says, well, uh, we need a third grade teacher. Do you think you could do it? Well, this was at the beginning of the summer, uh, end of the spring, whatever. And I thought, well, I can take, you know, I've already done studies for junior high and high school. And so I'll take summer and I'll do what I need to do to be able to teach third grade. So I accepted. Well, now my dad, my, your dad wasn't too excited about that because (laughs) here he was trying to finish up at BYU and that meant I would be in California. I hadn't really considered that too much, but I thought, you know, for a semester, a year, whatever, we could manage that. He could really concentrate on his studies. Well, no, he was spending his weekends traveling to and from California. So he kind of dropped out of that after the first semester. And, and uh, then he met someone in Ramona who was making um, national school assemblies. And this was something that I had been introduced to in uh, high school in Ramona. Everybody brought a dime and you would go in and have this really interesting uh, assembly. So usually quite educational, very educational. And I can't remember what any of them were that came to, to our school, but um, this fellow was doing that, Robin Stevens. And uh, so he'd come up with an idea and a script, things that would be of interest to high schools, and then train somebody to go and, you know, arrange for the, the uh, route that they would go and teach. And so, um, after my, he, he worked with him for a while and uh, was having a great time and he was planning to to do a tour back east and, you know, have this assembly. And so um, I was excited for us to go. So after teaching third grade for one year, I says, okay, that's it. I'm, I'm traveling with my husband and we're gonna have such a great time. We were looking forward to it. So after I resigned, um, Robin said, you know, you're so good at building these. Anybody can give them. Uh, We'll have somebody else do this and you'll stay here and help me. So there I was. Oh my gosh. And so it ended up that I went back to see if there was anything that they had that they needed a teacher for. Of course, the third grade one was gone. And so I ended up, um, they had boys PE at the junior high (laughs) that didn't quite fit me and uh, but they also had math the new math and so it ended up and math was you know always got good enough grades in it but it wasn't my favorite and so I was going to teach seventh grade math three different sections three different textbooks so it had the average student the kids who had trouble and then the smart kids 
And so I had to, you know, really study three different sets of things. And so they gave me a couple of um, prep periods. So I'd have time to study for it. And then I also did the yearbook. And when they needed to have uh, a choir of some kind, they'd we'd throw it together <laughs> in time <laughs> to do this. And my two uh, younger sisters, uh, Kathy and Roxy, were in the junior high at that time. And so, you know, I got to teach them as well. It was pretty fun. And uh, Can I break in here to ask about the new math? Yeah, the new math, uh, you know, it, it was something that I had never learned before. And the thing that I remember the most about it was we were learning base 8 and base 2 instead of just base 10, which everybody normally knows. So, you know, you had the zeros and ones and, and other stuff to help. And, and that, that was pretty much what I recall of the new math. Okay. And that was probably the worst year of my life. <laughs> So uh, I know were... you've had some trials in your life. So to say that new math <laughs> was the worst year of your life is kind of well, funny to me. But well, maybe it, there were it, other things going on. You're not just talking about the curriculum. It, it wasn't just that. You know, I, it would have been fine. But there were, you know, uh, and I have to say, going into this, one of my favorite boys' names was Michael. But there were three Michaels in this uh class that mm -hmm. spread throughout the three levels that were holy terrors. And I know one of them did end up in the penitentiary. Okay. And, uh, and the others, I think probably turned their lives around. And were okay. <laughs> the others probably should have been. No, well, <laughs> you know, maybe at that time in juvie or something like that. But, um, but anyway, um, yeah. So I, you know, I had nightmares that that was a horrible year. Just having to deal with those Michaels. And uh, so <clears throat> somehow I survived. The next year I got to teach high school and, and it was wonderful because I did get to teach the things that I had studied in college. I did English art and music and I also got to do um, um, drama as well. So we put on oh. plays. It was, it was really fun. And so I taught there uh, <clears throat> with this wonderful stuff until, let's see, um, Let's see, Gov was born in October of 68, though I've been in between. So anyway, um, I, I started teaching at the old high school where I had graduated, and in between they built the new high school. And so the administration building that you were used to was, was where I taught to start with, and then, mm -hmm. um, yeah. And so that, that all worked fine. And then when Desra came along and she was going to be born in March, new superintendent, and he just didn't think you should be having babies while you're teaching. And so he basically said that, um, you know, probably be a good idea for you to um, just suspend your teaching career until after you stopped having babies. <laughs> so I'm going, I don't think they would let me do it at that time. But anyway, it worked out for the best. And um, <clears throat> then I got to teach again after you were born. I got to go and teach uh, music in the schools. And the, the rest of the time that I taught, I was teaching music in the, in the classroom, which was a marvelous, marvelous fun thing. And one of the highlights of my 
teaching career, you know, with choirs and all the stuff that we did, um, was learning the Orff Schulberg way of teaching kids with the xylophones and the recorders and solfege and all that fun stuff, and then being able to uh, present a play at the National Convention of Orff work that was in San Diego. Mm -hmm. So the ESOP again, which has been such a fun thing, and I've enjoyed um, doing that not only at the schools a couple of times, but also, uh, you know, shortened version that we did for the family reunion mm -hmm. that one time, which was so much fun. And I'd love to do it one more time and get the younger kids that didn't get a chance to do it before. I don't know if that'll happen or not, but that is something that I, I would love to do. So, and then of course you're, um, well, we'll talk about some of these other things as we're talking about all what, what I've got figured out as we go on some of the trials, but anyway, ended up Can being... I interject a question here? I'm sure. curious. Sure. Were you ever, it sounds like you had always planned on being like a working mom. Was, was that the case? Um, you or know, was it I, a financial necessity as well, or what was the? You know, I never really connected the idea of being a working mom with being a teacher, but that's just kind of what it was. And uh, your dad was always kind of in different kinds of things. He he wasn't the kind of person that could just work for something, you know, mm -hmm. for a company. Uh, he was more of the entrepreneurial kind of things. He had very creative ideas, things that he wanted to do. So he had his own business, but it wasn't always profitable, shall we say. Mm -hmm. um, but, but it was always so interesting. I mean, so many ideas and things that we're doing. We ended up in Carpinteria one time because he was working with a, a company. So we're up there when Jeremy was born. Mm -hmm. And um, so... Yeah, I I never really thought about it a whole lot, but I just, it just kind of is what happened. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, um, when, uh, when I was widowed, then I got the opportunity, well, to, to get a master's degree to go up and finish that. And so that, you know, that's kind of the way things have kind of gone. It's just been a really interesting life and trials kind of shape the way things happen in your life. So what do you mean when you say that? That we will talk about in the big what I have all figured out. Well, let's transition right that was our that was my beautiful transition, mom. <laughs> Or did you well, want to talk about one? something before that? I don't know. Well, am, am I interviewing you or am I just here along for the ride? It sounds like you've got your own plan. You've got a trajectory, well, an itinerary. You, you had three things, three things that you wanted me to consider. Yes. Uh, two things that I had all figured out. One's something kind of simple and one that's more uh, grandiose. Mm -hmm. And then something that I definitely did not have figured out. So okay. that's, that's kind of we'll what do I've been pondering on. <laughs> I understand. I understand how this relationship works. <laughs> You're in charge, period. <laughs> Whatever. Like I well, wasn't some kind of terrible spoiled brat. We all know. <laughs> and all your curses have come true, mother. So I hope I, you're did, happy. 
Did I have curses? I you didn't remember. curse me. You didn't <laughs> curse me, but I just remember you saying things to me like, Ellery, if you could hear the way you're talking to me right now, <laughs> you would be so ashamed of yourself or something like that. When I was a teenager and just like your tone, you would just always talk to me about my tone. I'm like, what are you talking about tone? Let's talk. Let's focus on the content. No, I don't know what my problem was. But, you know, I find myself in a similar situation. Perhaps I have a teenage daughter. Perhaps I do. Yes, you just might. It's well, so it... crazy, though, because you cannot hear it with, with yourself. I was just talking with my sister, your other daughter. I was talking to Holly. And, you know, as, as we're parenting our teenagers, we kind of, you have to tag team, right? Because mm-hmm. it's too exhausting for one person to do it 100% of the time. <laughs> and when I was just hearing my husband interact with my daughter, I was like, oh, wow, that must be what I sound like. <laughs> you just have no idea. you know, Because you're so focused on what you're saying and how right you are as you're saying it. Mm-hmm. But you're not, mm-hmm. you, you can't have that kind of separation of being able to say, oh, Maybe that was a bit much. Very easy to see when someone else is doing it, but um, it seems perfectly normal and justified when you're doing it. So, well, you know, so I that... think that goes into how you were saying, I have a very specific memory of you saying, if you heard anyone else talk to their mother the way that you're talking to me right now, you would be appalled. Good for me. Yeah. <laughs> right. Oh, dear. You know, it is so funny because just uh, Saturday I went to um, – an energy healing uh, conference. Mm-hmm. And in one of the classes that I took, it was, it was a, basically how to get your uh, teenager out of the bedroom or something like that. And I thought, well, that sounds interesting. I wonder if there's anything there that I might be able to help my, my children with. What do I know? And of course, most of the people were there were people that had teenagers at the time. Mm-hmm. And we had this one little exercise they wanted us to do was to talk to, uh, you know, somebody who was sitting next to you, have an interaction there with the kinds of things that, that you had had heard your children say to you. Mm. So you would know how to respond with the, you know, with the um, direction that the presenter was going. And I was going, I can't remember anything bad my children said to me. (laughs) (laughs) What a relief. Oh, what a tender mercy. <laughs> it's been so long. All I can remember was the good things. Oh, that's and, great. And, how, and I tell you uh, how many times I thought how blessed I was to have the spirits come to me that were so easy to raise. Oh, <laughs> so. I thought you were going to talk about the spirits that came and erased your memory. <laughs> Those aren't the spirits you're talking about. Well, you know, what, whatever. So in the family, <laughs> I, I just... I, I have just felt so blessed because I've thought, well, I don't know if I would have had really difficult kids. I don't know what I would have done, but I had such, such good kids that um, it was quite a blessing to me. So, Well, we anyway. were just a reflection of our mother. What can I say? How could you be mad at mom? I mean, I found a way to do it, obviously, but you are just so, you are so lovely and angelic and you're, so what can we say? Well, I hate my mom. She's so nice. Everybody <laughs> likes her. It's terrible. Uh, well, how, how many times have I told the story about you growing up in a place where you were Mrs. Allen's daughter, so to speak? Oh, then, I definitely was. 
And then when we were off to BYU and you'd already been there in your group for a year and I came in and I was Ellery's mom, I just thought that was so perfect. <laughs> I loved it. <laughs> so anyway, there we go. <clears throat> so would you like to know about the first thing that I have all yes. figured out? All righty. This, I think, is just so amazing, and I have been able to share this with a multiplicity of people. I'm sure it's more than I could count on both hands, but I don't know how many it has been, because not everybody is interested in canning these mm -hmm. years. And the thing that I figured out was, well, I'll just say, say this way, it happened uh, one time when we were living in our little tiny house, it was now on BYU property, um, tiny little, I mean, one bedroom, if you could call it that, our bed was, um, was a hide-a-bed couch. Oh. And we had to fold it up to be able to move around in the, in the room because once you opened it to make it into a bed, I mean, it was like maybe one foot clearance at the foot. Wow. <laughs> so anyway, it was it was a tiny little place, but it was it was a good price and it was very convenient being as close as it was to the campus. So anyway, um, I had uh, and, and this to, to now I, I can't understand why this happened this way, but I had prepared corn for dinner, just a canned corn, and there must have been quite a bit of it. And for some reason, when I went to save what was left, you know, uh, to put it away, it was still quite hot. And I put it into a mayonnaise jar, and I don't know if you can remember these, I, I don't even think they have them anymore, but they had, uh, the lid was, um, had an actual kind of a rubberized seal inside of it and it was a narrow very narrow lids kind of like the uh, uh the pizza sauce yeah i was gonna lids, say spaghetti but, spaghetti yeah, sauce yeah they spaghetti still sauce. like that yeah but they or i were, guess anything that's jarred mm -hmm, that you buy at the yeah, store right can of but they, carts yeah but they were bigger it was a mayonnaise jar but it had that kind of a lid and so i put the corn in there and i put on the lid and you know i didn't think anything about it until i was going to use it the next time and I opened the lid and it went, and I went, it sealed. Oh, that was a revelation. Hmm. Because as I, I mean, we had done canning before and, and this was just something that, that we did. Um, and so I said, if it's sealed for that, I should be able to use it for other things like applesauce or canning peaches or whatever. Mm -hmm. And so I tried it and it worked. And so having those kind of jars, they were just like gold to me mm -hmm. because I could reuse that lid year after year after year until that seal would get hard. If it was hard, it wouldn't work. But right. as long as it was soft, I could use it. And so uh, over the years, I found out that that also worked with regular canning lids. If they hadn't been twisted you know, or, yeah. Yeah. And if the, the seal was still soft, I could use them. And of course, right now at the expense of, of lids, I mean, it's like almost $3 to get a, 
to get a dozen lids and you just go, well, that's not, that's not cost effective. <laughs> well, canning these days isn't cost effective, almost well, period, unless you get your produce for free. Yeah, if, if you do. And, and you know, like here in, yeah. Yeah, Utah, you can. Giving yeah. stuff away all the time. Please come and pick it so it doesn't make a mess on the ground, you know. So now you know you can reuse canning lids. But of course, the U.S. Department of Agriculture will tell you not to do that. Uh, correct. Okay. And that, of course, is, and the manufacturers will tell you not to do it. And of course, they have their reasons because <laughs> you have to keep buying them. Mm-hmm. But when you find out that um, that they can, and I have some lids that I've used three and four times, and I know that because I put labels on top of them. Right. <laughs> labels on top of labels. 85, yeah. 87, <laughs> 2002. Yes, exactly. Exactly. And so um, that's, that's just one of the places that you can find out that... Um, I suppose they have their reasons, and maybe they think people would use a lid that was bent, and uh, I know better than that. So That's just for people who don't know. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> and uh, when you don't know... Just like expiration date on food. That's just exactly. for people who don't know. It's a suggestion. Well, it's a suggestion, and some people take it as, you know, you're going to die if you use this after the date, which is ridiculous, but... Which reminds me of our fruit soup experience that I thought was pretty funny. I share that time and time again. Do you remember that one? Which one? You're going to have to be more specific. When I was making the fruit soup at your place there in... um, Minnesota. um, Yeah, in Minnesota. uh, One of the times, and you just were raving. You said, this is the best you have ever made. (laughs) And then... I revealed to you that the plums that I had used were as old as you were. Aha! <laughs> and so, yeah. That, and we uh, all lived to tell the tale. We did. Yes, we did. And we certainly enjoyed the, um, the uh, fruit soup. It was the very fine good. aged. Yes. <laughs> what a vintage that was. So, well, I talked yeah. to people about the time that you got some 40-year-old peaches from somebody you didn't even know. Well, no, <laughs> someone that you knew. I was like, someone in her ward died, and she took their extremely old peaches from 1979. Well, no, And then peaches... you brought them to us in Minnesota. Or these Are these the same plums in question? I remember there were very old peaches no. that you brought me. Yeah, there were some old peaches, and they weren't quite that old, because peaches do deteriorate after time. But plums seem to hold up pretty good. They looked a little funny. Well, they they were a little, but they were still firm and good. And if you put cinnamon in them, uh, nobody would ever know. Well, <laughs> Mom, we can't, as they say, the proof is in the pudding. And here you are approaching your 80-year-old birthday. So a lot of people died a lot younger than you are going to. <laughs> <laughs> Tis true. Tis what true. What a weird thing to say. I'm sorry. No, that's quite all right. I tell you, I have friends, I have people that have passed away younger than me, some older, and I have a little bit of maybe holy envy, can you say, Hmm. just because they don't have to deal with these problems that we do now. Oh, that's true. Oh, dear. 
so anyway, yeah, I had one one friend in my family home evening group, and she was in a wheelchair. She was always saying how she wanted to be here for the second coming. I was just going, you just don't understand what the problems are going to be, and this is not going to be good for somebody in your situation. Right. Well, she passed away, and so I'm glad that she's going to usher in the second coming from the she other side. She can still be free. there. Yeah, she doesn't yeah, have free, to. She's not going to wheelchair it either way. Right, yeah. sans wheelchair. Yep. Good point. Mm-hmm. Well, that's a good tip, Mom. I've used that before, back when I mm-hmm. did some canning, but I haven't mm-hmm. done it. Uh, I haven't done it since I've moved. That's for sure. I don't mm-hmm. have a good pantry here in Minnesota since we don't have basements. Yeah. yeah, that that does make a difference. And I have found out too, you don't have to do it all the big canning, uh, water bath things and everything. I, I can. I have. I have a little setup of pans that uh, that I can do four um, pints or three quarts at a time, and it's just perfect for me when I just you know don't have a lot to do, and mm-hmm. I can just do a little here and there, and uh, it certainly uh, is much easier than trying to get seven quarts of stuff all ready to go right. It when you've only got one idea. person. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, well that's great. Anyway, Mm-hmm. Well, thank you for sharing that little tidbit that you have figured out. And that's well, awesome, I hope especially my... as, you know, society falls down around our ears. We're going to need to know mm-hmm. these things. Well, that, that will be helpful. And a lot of people do not have that skill because everything is so available and, you know, reasonably yeah. uh, priced. Or at least it was. The way things are going now, we may change our minds. But, Yeah. I'm so surprised that I have never heard this story before. We were living in this tiny apartment where there was only one foot of space around the bed, and then all we had to eat was corn for dinner, a can of corn. <laughs> and then with the leftovers from the can of corn, I put them in a used mayonnaise bottle. That sounds like poverty. Oh, no, no, no. It wasn't only corn. If it oh. was only corn, there wouldn't have been any left. That's what I was thinking. I'm like, this story isn't adding up, but that's fine. Dad was never, you know, a small eater. No, no, that's for sure. So. And uh, so, yeah. But I do like the idea of, well, with our leftover corn. <laughs> for my <laughs> can of corn dinner. And I also well, thought it was just... interesting you said you prepared a can of corn. I'm, I think it's pretty much done when you take it out of the well, can. But what do I and know? It was, well, you know, I heated it up. And, and for the oh, life okay. of me, you know, I'm going, did I do two cans of corn? How could that be even something you would put in a mayonnaise yeah, jar? I, I mean, it was a full-size was a mayonnaise size jar. size 10 can of corn? Yeah. Anyway, sorry. I, I don't, know. I shouldn't have um, questioned <laughs> the validity of your story. Well, but it was 60 it, years ago, so there's that. Well, not 60. Yeah, there's certainly, yeah, yeah. Could have been, could have been 60 years ago. All right, Mom, what else do you have figured out? Well, and this, this one is a little more complicated. And... It is something that has impressed me more since I have been giving my pilgrim presentations. Mm. <clears throat> because basically, it all falls down to a, uh, a saying that was first written down that they found in the middle of the 1500s. And that is, it's an ill wind that blows no man any good. Mm. And you know, for the pilgrims, their, their trials in trying to get from England to the New World, leaving in July, thinking that it would take them a month to get to where they were going, 
and ending up not getting there until November. Mm-hmm. So many problems, not ending up in Virginia where they thought they were going to be, but being blown off course because of the winds and the kind of a ship that they were in that could go against the wind uh, up in the Massachusetts area. And and then having um, two Native Americans who knew how to speak English, one of them, which again, this saying, Squanto, who had been kidnapped twice and taken to Europe, the first time to England, the second time to Spain, ostensibly sold as a slave, and eventually getting back to England. And with his time coming back the first time, reunited with his family, then getting kidnapped again. And the second time when he returned, his family's whole tribe, some 2,000 people, uh, had died in the meantime. Right. And he was he was the only person left at tribe. And therefore, knowing English, knowing where his tribe had stored their, you know, their supplies, he was like like a savior for the pilgrims who had lost half of their people uh, during that first hard winter. Um, I mean, they they were desperate. Mm-hmm. They they would not have known. How, they they probably would have perished because they didn't know how to grow anything. They the seeds they had brought from England couldn't grow in that climate and the rocky soil. I mean, there's so many things against them, but because Squanta was there and because of his tribe's stores, they were able to have something to eat and to plant and to make it through the first year that they were there. And they they weren't hunters. They weren't fishermen. They didn't know how to do any of that stuff. And without his help in all of those things, you know, it really, really made a difference. And of course, being there and away from everything else, they they had to come up with their own way to govern themselves. And so we had these things, plus the fact that they were one of the things that they had agreed to do with the Virginia company who who, um, provided for their trip and all the things that they would need to get started as a colony, they required pay us back in seven years and also to live this particular way. And that is that everybody works as hard as they can and share equally in what you produce. And of course, now we call that socialism. They tried it for two years and it was a miserable failure. They barely would have enough to get through the the winter and plant again in the spring. And so when uh, uh, my eighth great grandfather, of course your ninth, William Bradford, (laughs) realized that that this wasn't working, and of course he saw it wasn't, but he didn't know what to do because they agreed to do this. Uh, he was reading in Second Thessalonians where it said, "He who does not work shall not eat." And see, this is the problem. There are people who didn't want to work, and so when they saw that people who couldn't work got just as much as everybody else, and they took every opportunity they could to not be able to work. And then the people who did work hard and knew the value of it saw that there were people who should be working and weren't, they didn't want to work hard to pay for them either. Mm-hmm. And so, and that's human nature. Right. So when he says, if you don't work, you're not going to eat, and everybody got their own plot of land and their own seeds, then they everybody became very industrious, realizing that they weren't going to just mooch off of somebody else's work. And so they, they planted three times as much seed that year, and they had such a bountiful harvest. I mean, the whole story is, I can't take the time to tell it right now, 
but they were able to pay off the Virginia that first year. Oh. Sadly, the ship that they sent back with what would have paid it off met pirates and it never got back to them. So they were able to, but <laughs> it didn't turn out that way. So the story is long and involved. But um, anyway, the whole thing that, that, um, that I want to say is just that things that seem so devastating at a time can turn around and be a blessing. Hmm. And so the, the thing that started this off for me as I've been thinking about it, I remember uh, driving to um, a meeting for the church, and it was, um, it was off the hill. And as I was driving, I had a long way to go, and I was just pondering. I was thinking about how blessed my life had been. I mean, we just, you know, we weren't rich, but we had everything we needed, and things were going so well. It was just really very nice. And that was probably in September, and it was just before, well, before the first real trial came, and that was uh, when Peter was was hit uh, going across the main street. So we lost him. And that that was such a trial. And I have to say, it's one that I felt I really didn't do well in because I don't feel like we ever talked about it with our with our family and resolved it. I mean, we made it through. We all kind of knew and understood things, but we didn't ever talk about it. Hmm. So that, that has been a bit of a problem for me, but it was, you know, kind of like the, the beginning of problems. And I know when your dad was building the casket for Peter and Jeremy and Gov were helping with this, I think this was a very important time that while they were grieving, yet they were doing something of a service mm-hmm. uh, at the same time. And of, of course, Gov kind of picked up on that and put those ideas and skills together and uh, helping with other um, funerals as well with the caskets because he did for your dad 10 years later because Peters was in 86 and your dad uh, passed away in 96. Mm-hmm. And then, um, of course, there was Aunt Janine's as well. And so anyway, we, we just had opportunities to do that. But, you know, every, every time we talk about adversity in church, Relief Society or Sunday school or something like that, these, these things come back to my mind. And, and I, am, I am reminded and, and in a way taught that, of course, everyone has adversity in one degree or another. Mm-hmm. And they say that no one would want to trade places with anybody else. Mm-hmm. Just because you you know your own problems, right. and even though you look at somebody else and you think, oh, they have an easy life, you know, if you actually knew, you go, no, no, that's fine. You keep your problems, I'll keep mine. Um, and and it's the kind of thing that um, in uh, Fiddler on the Roof, when uh, Tevia is saying, it's in the song that even when our hearts are panting on the floor, God wants us to be thankful for these things, you know, and so. <laughs> How can you be thankful for these adversities? Mm-hmm. And uh, but but when you look back, and again the saying, "It's an ill wind that blows no man any good." The trials can change our lives and put us in a place where things are better than they would have been without the trial. And you talk to people who had you know terrible diseases, or they've had you know physical uh, amputations, things like that, and and. Those who come out on top and are not bitter have found a way to turn that straw into gold, so to speak. Mm. 
in one way or another. And it's just like when when Gary died, um, that gave me an opportunity to go and get my master's degree, for which I was very grateful. And I never probably would have even thought about finishing it up. Mm-hmm. You know, had had he lived, it, it would not have even occurred to me, I don't think. I mean, it might have, but anyway. Um, and so that, that put a big change in my life because of the things I was able to learn and do that year. And so it, it has helped me to understand that also going through the trials, you can help other people. Mm-hmm. And if you never had a trial in your life, then you look at other people that have trials and you just can't imagine, well, what's wrong with you? Why are you having all these problems? That, you know, it's mm-hmm. like Job of old, you know, his friends are going, well, what did you do to offend God? You know, right. what? <laughs> listen, we're and... all offending God like all the time. Okay, so we can't have that be the indicator. Well, no, that is true because we all all have our little problems and some have bigger problems. But that that is pretty much the thing that I have figured out is to be, um, even if it's hard at the point, you know, when you're going through the trial, you oftentimes wonder why me? And, and then I would say, why not me? Right. And oh, the thing that I was thinking of, you know, when I thought how things were going so well, I was wondering, why am I so blessed? And now sometimes I wonder, you know, maybe you shouldn't think these things because then it kind of triggers somebody. Oh, yeah, she hasn't been having any trials. Time for a change. (laughs) (laughs) And so things, things occur and but it's almost like you're sort of prepared for them in advance. And, and uh, one trial that I had was when I was in that accident on that same road when, All right. when I was going to, going to get eggs to bake a pie when my oven element had burned out and I'd forgotten that and I couldn't have made the pie anyway. Hmm. But there I was crossing Main Street no traffic coming that I could see. There was a slow moving semi coming. And so I said, okay, I'm going across. And as I got into the middle of the intersection, I realized that there was a car on the other side of the semi that I couldn't have seen. And I knew it was going to hit me. And what went through my mind at that time was, where did he come from? He's going to hit me. Here comes another trial. Hmm. And that's the last thing that I remembered. And this to me is so incredible and I cannot explain it to this day, but I have no recollection of the impact. All I know is that I was once again aware after my car was upside down and there were people at the door asking me how I was. Hmm. I didn't hit my head. And so I was never unconscious because of a, you know, uh, because I hit something. But one of the biggest blessings in my life, I think, is that I don't have that recollection and it's not a nightmare. Mm -hmm. So, of course, I had the broken arm, I had broken pelvis, I had, you know, time that I had recuperate and everything. But one thing that I've looked at that and, you know, I don't think it happened for this purpose, but one of the things that did happen is that when I went to the skilled nursing facility, that uh, when I went into there, Somebody said, oh, hope you don't have to room with Betty. 
Well, I roomed with Betty. <laughs> and the problem with Betty was that her son had instructed the people that she was supposed to be able to get help for her pain on demand. And the problem with that is that once she noticed that she had pain and they would give her the medication, it would take quite some time before the pain effect. Mm -hmm. And during that time, she was very irritable, as you can imagine, because the pitch was, you know, quite a bit. And so one time when he was visiting her, I mentioned to him that situation. And after that, they put her on a regular schedule. So she wouldn't be in great pain before she would think to ask. And then, so that helped out. So that's one thing that happened good because I was there. The other thing, um, the people down in Poway were so gracious to me. I mean, they were bringing me movies to watch. They were bringing me all of these treats. I mean, the stuff that I never should be eating <laughs> was all there, you know? And so when Betty would be, you know, in her pain, I would tell her, just go and have something to, you know, to eat. And she had quite a big choice. And, and that always seemed to, you know, make her life a little bit better. Mm -hmm. And so I know Betty's life was better because I was there and I wasn't there all that long. I mean, and so, you know, I was back home again, but it did take a while before I was back to my old self, but didn't have too long that I was unable to give my piano lessons for what was pleased. But anyway. So it so, seems like you, when you have a trial, you've learned how to look at it, that it's an opportunity to serve. Is that accurate? Or that whatever ever you're going through, it's going to then be a benefit to others. It, it can be a benefit in some way, in some way that you would not have considered had you not gone through that trial. Mm -hmm. And so for that, I, I appreciate it because also you can commiserate with other people. You can share your experience, which might help them to deal with whatever they're going through. And then inevitably, these circumstances bring you into contact with people that you would not have otherwise been in contact with. Yeah, yeah. Like Betty. Very, very true. Like Betty, yeah. And with a situation like that, I mean, I, I came into her life. I left out of her life. I don't have any idea what happened to her after that. But um, it's little things like that. And uh, there are so many little things that can happen and they can happen because of annoyances or big problems in your life, things that will in some way or another be beneficial to somebody. And sometimes you may not even know that you have helped a person just because you have survived something. Right. So anyway, that, that is the thing that I have figured out as a way to look at, at adversity. That's beautiful. Thank you. Well, you've had plenty of adversity to uh, think about that about. So that's great. I guess you're still laughing well. and smiling. These low, these many years of a terrible life. Uh. Okay. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> well, I, I think I can say with Jimmy Stewart, it's a wonderful life. It's a wonderful you know? life. <laughs> Before we go on, I'm not sure I understand that phrase. Oh, that's an ill wind. How 
maybe I'm missing it. So maybe someone else. Okay. Says. Well, let's just take a look at the COVID. Well, I'm talking you know, about the actual words of the phrase. Can you say it again? It's an ill wind that blows no man any good. So we're saying that most of the time wind does blow somebody some good. Is that what yeah. that's what it's meaning? Yes. Um, it's just like, you know, if it blows the roof off your house, then the person who repairs your house is going to benefit from that. I see what you're saying. So there's mm -hmm. an upside to everything. Yeah, is basically it's, it's, is. it's like that set of paintings that I made of the sycamore tree where one side was in the sun and the other side's in the shade. Mm -hmm. And so there's the two sides to everything. It's, it's just like um, um, any, any situation or anything. Well, we, we can be going along and having uh, a wonderful time, and then all of a sudden things are bad. Ups mm -hmm. and downs, ups and downs. The vicissitudes of life. And, and any time that we are in that sad, difficult time, uh, we have the good times that we can look at, and we can appreciate all the more. And we can expect that good times are ahead of us as well. We forget that quickly. Oh, yeah. When we're how, in a bad how time. How quickly we do. Yeah. How quickly we do. I feel but, like I may uh, be sometimes able to remember that. But mm -hmm. a lot of the time, <laughs> I'm not. And then I expect my kids to snap out of it. I'm like, I can't even snap out of it. And I'm twice their age. So <laughs> more than well, yeah, twice. And, and that's, that is the thing. Because... We're all learning, and sometimes it takes more than one lesson for us to be able to learn these things. And so, you know, we, we've heard time and time again that when we go through a trial, we go, what was I supposed to learn from this? Mm -hmm. we've, we've heard that. And a lot of times we just go through it and we don't examine it. Sometimes it takes us a while to realize that, that it's past. Right. But, but when we look back at it, I think this is really important for us to to see what we did. How could we have handled it differently? Will this be something that I can utilize at another time when something like this happens? Mm -hmm. Will I be able to handle it differently? Will I? Because no no two trials are exactly the same, mm -hmm. and so um, what you learn from one in one particular sense may not truly help you another one, but there should be some something that can help you maneuver the other trials, which, you know, are going to happen. And uh, I'm looking, looking now thinking, hmm, things are looking pretty bad here in the country and the world. And <laughs> what, what have I already learned that I might be able to um, use to prepare hmm. for what lies ahead? Well, it sounds like you've got it all figured out, Mom. <laughs> but I know you have one thing that you haven't figured out that you would, that you're willing to share with us. Ah, yeah, and this, this is so difficult, so difficult. Because I, I don't know how many people be listening to this that are not members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. But um, this, and, and it's not just me, 
because mm -hmm. there are many people that I've talked to that are feeling similarly and very concerned, uh, particularly the way that things have been rolling out with this um, pandemic. Oh, did I put that L in there? Oh. Um, which we're learning more and more about that that L belongs in there. Anyway, um, to have the church continuing with this masking, whereas I remember when we'd have Halloween parties for the youth, nobody was allowed to wear a mask, and now everyone's asked to wear a mask. Mm -hmm. And of course, when you do that, you are severely cutting into your relationships with other people because you cannot see, you cannot read their emotions, their reactions, because you cannot see their mouth. Mm -hmm. And that is such a big part of our interactions with other people. Yeah. And then on top of it, not only to say that we should take this experimental vaccine mm -hmm. because of the wise government officials that we have. I take issue with that term. Right. That it is just incomprehensible to me that we're being instructed to do this and missionaries are told they have to get vaccinated if they leave the country. I guess that's something to go places, but just knowing the things that I have learned about the vaccine, I'm just so unhappy about that. Mm -hmm. And then to have them spending millions of dollars to help people in third worlds become vaccinated mm -hmm. is, is dreadful as well when there are things that they could do that would help them overcome it quickly and easily, like in India with the um, ivermectin mm -hmm. that they have done there and so many people have, have been able to use. Um, I, I just, I cannot come to grips with the fact that they are not aware of these other possibilities and are choosing the route that they are. And so it, it is quite difficult for me to do that. I feel like I'm almost looked at as an apostate when I go to church meetings and don't wear a mask. Mm -hmm. There's a handful of us that don't. But it's, it's just, um, you don't like to go against what the leaders say, as you expect that they are inspired. Right. And then, you know, my mind goes back to, well, there are some problems with the Hoffman forgeries. Right. That, that, you know, that was another time that the inspiration didn't come as it should have. And other, other times, other places. And I've I'm just so torn with this. Now, this just this past Saturday, I was hoping I'd have this quote by today, but uh, one of the uh, 
people that we were with and as we were driving to the conference had a quotation that is somewhere in Joseph Smith papers that talks about a possibility of this kind of a situation. And I was reminded of the saying, I have no idea where it was, but, but the effect that, to the effect that even the very elect would be deceived. Mm-hmm. Do you remember that? I, yeah, I, I mean, I've, I've heard that kind of thrown mm-hmm. around that in the last days that even the very elect will be deceived. Yeah, yeah. for sure. And so, like I say, I was hoping that I would have had that quote by now. And the fellow said, I know I've got it, but it's going to take me some time to find it. So that, that I am waiting on. But, um, and I've also heard that, that the inner vessel will need to be cleaned first. Well, this is in Matthew 24, 24, mm-hmm. where there shall arise false Christs and false prophets and shall show great signs and wonders insomuch that if it were possible, they shall deceive the very elect. Yeah. So that's just... If it were possible. And I'm just thinking that you, we, we may be in that place right now. And the thing is, when I have something that I want to share, I'm saying, look at this information, look at this documented information, and I want to have it, you know, because now we we aren't, as far as I know, we're not really able to approach the higher leadership. It's supposed to go up through the lines, mm-hmm. your bishop, through the stake president, and so on. And my bishop just put the kibosh on the, that first thing I did. Oh, no, I'm sure that they know everything they need to know, and they're whatever, and I'm just going... Well, <laughs> and when I when I'm thinking of of things like Deseret News and KSL, mm-hmm. they they don't see the whole picture either. And if this is where they're getting their news and their information, it is slanted to one direction, and and they are being deceived. But I don't know how to how to rectify that. And I, I just, it's just, um, I don't know, it, it bothers me. And after the last conference, I could not sleep the night after that conference. Really? Because I was just so, so torn because it was just, I mean, beautiful messages, mm-hmm. but nothing addressing the pertinent problems. Right. I, w- I won't say nothing because there was one, one woman who spoke about Esther Mm-hmm. And there was one fellow who, yeah, leaves me right now, but that gave me a little bit of hope, but it was like drops in the ocean. I think it's very difficult yeah. because we feel such an attack on our freedom. Yeah. And when we look at the Book of Mormon and we see Captain Moroni. Yep. And his standard of liberty and not... And just kind of uh, equating that when our political rights are taken away, our religious rights are taken away. Mm-hmm. Um, and we all want to to be Captain Moroni, and that is, and we want the people that are leading us to be Captain Moroni. Yes, that was that was one of the things that I have thought so often, um, and just where is our Captain Moroni? 
is it supposed to be me? Am I the one that's supposed to step up? Right. How, how can I do that? Where can I do that? And one of, um, just this last week, we had a Liberty Forum meeting and we had two speakers and the first one basically talked about Captain Moroni. He, he had been um, a police officer in Salt Lake City and he was assigned to participate in the Pride Parade <clears throat> mm -hmm. and to be doing certain things that would indicate that he was supporting this. Right. I mean, to be in the parade and doing, you know, motorcycle, whatever things that they do in a parade, you know. Mm -hmm. And he said, I cannot do that. He says, I will be happy to do security. Mm -hmm. But I can't do what you're asking. Well, he was fired. Wow. And he ended up going down to someplace in, in uh, southern Utah. But he has been doing other things. I don't know if he is able to serve as a police officer right now, but he's been organizing rallies and concerts and things to counteract the uh, oppression, the oppressive things that have been going on. Mm -hmm. Of course, our state isn't as bad as some, but right. we still have people in high places who, who would if they could get away with it. And so, you know, this is a problem. And he talked about Captain Moroni, and I had been thinking about that, you know, since, I don't know, since how long. But that's it. That is exactly it. And our freedoms are being compromised. And when I don't see our leadership stand up against it, when are you going to stand up against it? You look at the time when the Nazis were doing all their dreadful things in, in Germany and how the Jewish people would just say, well, it's, it won't get worse than this and something else it won't get worse than this. Won't get worse. I mean, that was the continual thing. It right. was the, the frog in the, in the, in the kettle of water, mm -hmm. the same kind of thing. And if we can't see those parallels today, then we were blind to history repeating itself. Right. We have no excuse because we know what happened in Germany. Mm -hmm. And we know those things can happen again because of human nature. We've got people who are snitching on each other. You, you know, you're not wearing your mask when you're supposed to. We have the people who overdo it. They wear their mask in the car, for heaven's sakes. And I'm just going, ah, I just want to pull my hair out sometimes. Well, not completely, but, you know, figuratively speaking, that we are becoming so divided because people are not understanding what is happening. And that is my frustration that I cannot figure out at this point. Well, I don't know that this is helpful. No, I'm gonna it say. is not. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> nothing, nothing is helpful right now. Nothing is. I mean, it just, but it adds to our understanding. So go ahead. Well, no, I was just thinking about how we don't really know like when to walk away from something, you know, so we can struggle with this. I mean, and, and it makes you struggle uh -huh. with your faith and you start thinking, well, I've always agreed with this church and I've always thought uh -huh. that what they were doing was right and true. And if I had a question about it, I just assumed that they were right. Uh -huh. And, but now you're in a position where it seems like what they're doing is wrong. 
Mm-hmm. And it seems like they're supporting kind of the opposite of what my understanding of the gospel and my understanding of our priorities and values mm-hmm. would indicate. Like yeah. we're, we're going down the wrong road. Um, and and so especially, it, mm-hmm. I'll just interject, remember where you were. Um, I have I have found some places on the internet with other Christian churches who are adamant against these things. Right. And speak up, and they they are being Captain Moroni's in their own place. And I'm just going, why aren't we? Right, absolutely. Um, I don't think that you are alone at all in this no. in oh, this I'm line not. of thinking. Um, and it just kind of reminds me of how sometimes people can have, have be struggling in their marriage mm-hmm. and kind of wondering... You know, because there's good things and there's bad things with everything here on this earth. Nothing's perfect. Yeah. Um, but even though we've kind of gotten used to thinking that the church is perfect. Mm-hmm. And we've kind of gotten used to thinking that they won't make any any mistakes. Yeah. And, um, and we kind of had that anticipation when we get married that, you know, either I'm so great or my spouse is so great that we're not going to have any problems. And if we have any problems, they're going to get worked out. And eventually yeah. it's going to be perfect, but ultimately mm-hmm. it's not really like that. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like, and you have to kind of, you have to weigh the benefits, like the positives mm-hmm. and the negatives and according mm-hmm. to your values, you know? And mm-hmm. so maybe you, you might get to yourself, find yourself in a situation with your spouse. Now this is going to sound really pointed or whatever. And you just kind of realize, you know what, this, this need that I have maybe is mm-hmm. not going to be fulfilled by my spouse. Mm-hmm. They can't be everything. They can't right. be perfect. And maybe mm-hmm. this, you know, and, and what do we really look to the church for? We're looking for salvation. Mm-hmm. We're looking to be able to have, um, to have the ordinances offered by Jesus Christ in his restored church. We're looking right. for, for that. And we're not going to find mm-hmm. that someplace else. Now, can mm-hmm. we find um, our, our need to fight for freedom? our need to be united with like-minded people to move towards political change. Can we find that somewhere else? We absolutely can. Mm -hmm. So does that mean that we need to throw away or walk away from either, either from my marriage or from my church because Mm -hmm. it's not giving me 100% everything that I think or or that I believe that I need or that is right. And I don't think it, it, it's a, that it's a coincidence that Christ so often talked about the church and Christ as being a marriage relationship. True, true. So it's kind of like, and and, you know, there's people who've been in the church that have struggled with the opposite side, that the church has been too conservative. Mm -hmm. And on these certain questions, when they've come out, they've they've had a real struggle. And it's hard for those people to stay. Right. So I don't know. See, So it's like when we kind of expect the church to do all these things, when really what the church is supposed to do is to bring us to Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. And Jesus isn't going to be asking me, I don't think, at the end of my life, whether or not I was wearing a mask <laughs> or whether or not I was vaccinated. You know what I mean? Let's so, hope not. Let's so, hope not. So huh? for me, we may not know everything that's going on. And I think that there's a place in God's kingdom for everyone who wants to be there. Mm-hmm. And maybe yep. we're right, maybe we're wrong. The point is, when we have to make a decision, are we going to be able to go to God and find out what he wants us to do? 
But that doesn't answer your question as to how much how much am I supposed to be saying, okay, do whatever you want, do what you think is right, or do I speak up and say this is what I think is right? And again, I think that's where we have to live close to the spirit to know. But it's so hard for me. It's so hard because my emotions and my intellect get so loud in a response to the things that are going on that I don't take the time to stop and listen and ask. And sometimes the answers don't come immediately. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that is certainly a test of faith to hang in there. Mm-hmm. even when you don't get the answers that you're hoping to hear, that you're willing to hear. Right. And so... Well, sometimes we don't ask because we don't have a question. Right? And sometimes... <laughs> I've already sometimes decided. I w- sometimes I wonder if I have the right question. Right. Yeah. I mean, that it's not just about learning to pray. Eventually you need to pray to know what to pray for. Yeah. Exactly. So I just keep working at it. Yep. We just keep going until we've got it figured out. And you know, it's like you're talking about with your trials that you're going through now. This is a big Uh trial, you know, not necessarily like a physical trial, but Uh to actually have a trial of your faith. Yeah. And uh, some of the things we've been talking about in Come Follow Me right now, you know, with the plural marriage Mm -hmm. trial that that was, you know, I'm just going... What can I learn from that experience in this time? Sure. How can I utilize that? So, and I wonder, you know, is it a similar kind of a thing? Mm -hmm. Because if you don't think that this is a revelation, or you wonder if there was any revelation or if it's just, well, you know, this is what our wise government officials have said i'm going that's not revelation right (laughs) so again you know it is it is like i said before no two trials are ever exactly the same well and it's kind of it maybe this is what it is about getting everything figured out we're never going to have everything figured out and things are Mm going to keep coming at us throughout our lives that are going to kind of necessary necessitate us having to level up or to increase mm-hmm. our skills and our knowledge and all these other kinds of things. But the mm-hmm. thing that we have to have figured out is how do I continue moving forward when I don't have everything figured out? Isn't that the truth? And I think that's where we have to say, okay, well, what do I really know? In fact, this is something that I was talking with my kids this week as we've been dealing with trials um, mm-hmm. as well. It's just, to me, the thing that's important is I can know what is true and I can do what is right. Mm-hmm. So yep. does that mean it's for everybody? Not necessarily. But as for me, God is going to tell me enough that I need to know right now so I can, I can do what is right. Mm-hmm. Yes, do what is right. Let the consequence follow. There we go. And then if you find out that you were wrong, then you, then change. Then you do what's right. <laughs> <laughs> yep. then you, all you can do is the next right thing. Correct. Battle for freedom in spirit and might. And so we just don't sit by. We, we study it out and we move forward. We share with other people wherever we can mm-hmm. and hope that truth, and we know truth will prevail right. sooner or later. 
just that we wish it were sooner right. <laughs> than it seems to be. <laughs>